Hi, everybody. Welcome to Busy Living Sober. Busy Living Sober. Busy Living Sober. It is episode 183 with Gigi Langer. Hi, Gigi. Hey, how are you doing? Busy? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank good, you. Thank you good. in these crazy times we're living in. Yep. And we're still living sober. We are. We are still living sober. By the sober. grace of God. That's and fabulous. It is because I think a lot of people are, it's finding, it's a challenging time, right? Yeah, it really is. And one of my biggest urges the minute it started happening was to connect with others, which was such a gift to have Zoom and all the tools, you know, because we need each other more now than ever. Oh. Amen to that. Amen yeah. to that. Yeah. So I have to tell you, and I was starting to tell you this. So I am, and I, cause I'm totally transparent with my listeners. So I, you know, I, I didn't have a guest lined up for this week. I actually, somebody canceled. So I thought, Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe and everybody knows that this is like very campy cause it's just me and my computer now. And, and me and, you, and, and Gigi. And, um, and so I was like, what am I going to do? And then I got your email and I was so excited because for one, the title of your book, I love that it's all about worry, 50 ways to worry less now. And I thought, and reject negative thinking to find peace, clarity, and connection. And I thought, wow, it's, um, I don't believe in coincidences. I don't know if you do. <laughs> God does it. <laughs> he does. It's a, and, I, and when I was first getting sober almost 14 years ago, somebody gave me a book and it was called God's Little Winks. And I was like, oh my gosh, this came in. So I got your email and I was like, oh my gosh, this is a God little wink. And I've got to have her on. I've got to have her on. This is I hope it works out. So I'm so glad we made it work out. I am so excited yeah, you're here. Yeah, I am too. It's a real treat. It really is. Yeah. So your journey has been one of, wow. It's like, you're, are you a survivor? Are you a warrior? I mean, gosh, amazing, amazing. Oh. You know, I started out as a wuss. <laughs> a wuss. But wearing the facade of the tough girl, you know, yeah. I rode horses and jumped fences and skied with the guys and played singles with the guys and drank with the guys and slept with the guys. And, um, you know, I was trying to be tough and to prove to myself that I wasn't a wuss. And yet, uh, you know, as things went on, I got into achieving and grades and degrees and, you know, and then the disparity between my private little CD life by the early 80s, I was in my third marriage and already uh, going out to bars when he was traveling and going home with guys. And, you know, I thought, geez. And then I had this really good job at Eastern Michigan University looking really good here. And I had these two going together and it was excruciating, you know, having those, that dirty little secret life in this one. Eventually I did go to a psychologist and say, you know, I have this brand new degree from Stanford. What the hell, you know, <laughs> why am, <laughs> what's wrong with this picture? And he said, you're in the early stages of alcoholism. You know, he got the family history and, and so on. And um, it was a little puzzling for me to accept that I was an alcoholic. He could see that. He was very wise and guided. And he suggested 
And notice he said, you're in the early stages of alcoholism. You know, that so was, it feels better. <laughs> that's right. Oh, that's not so bad. You know? <laughs> and uh, he said, if you really want to know if you have a problem, try having two drinks, no more, no less, every day. So I did that. And what was weird about it was that sometimes I could have two drinks and stop and be like a social drinker. Other times I would have two drinks, a third drink, the fourth drink, go home with a stranger, whatever. And after six months of doing that experiment, I realized that I could not predict. Once I had one, I could not predict if I was going to be the social drinker or the crazy girl who endangered herself and others. So that got my attention big time, my last big I didn't even wait till my husband was out of town. <laughs> you know, I went to the bar and that's the opening sequence of the, of the, um, the book is me sitting in that bar thinking, what the hell, you know? So it's been a, I'm so grateful that I listened to the expert. Yeah. That was a big help. For some reason, I just knew he was speaking the truth and I needed to listen. Well, I love that you started your journey going to see someone and them saying to you, now, you, could be, you could be in the early stages of alcoholism. Yeah, that's yeah, kind yeah. Of, and, and that's nice, right? That's with kid gloves, right? It's really yeah, that's right. <laughs> and you then, you know, you, you did take that time to do a little research. And if you, I mean, in certain, you know, 12-step groups, we, they talk about the research that one can do, correct? Yeah. And, um, and so you did that research and then you realized on your own recognizance pretty much that, you know what, I've got a problem. I can't do this. This is like mm -hmm. I, managing, it's the one. And I remember when I was getting sober, they'd be like, well, it's the first drink that got you drunk. And I'm like, no, I can have 47. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. You know, I also, um, <clears throat> I always got horrible hangovers and I didn't drink a lot in college or high school even. I had one big, got a horrible hangover, but everybody said I was so much fun, right? And then in college, you know, there were one or two episodes where I got really drunk and like went to a hotel with my boyfriend's fraternity brother, you know, crazy. But just a few little incidents, not regular drinking. And I um, started teaching and, and uh, you know, I just, it was, it's a, a long story how the marriages went. Um, but basically, I couldn't handle uh, reality. Mm. And I then, because I didn't want to have hangovers and booze, you know, on my breath or beer or wine, I found marijuana. Mm. And it was fabulous. No hangover, made the world go away. You could kind of fake it with it. Because in those old days, you know, it was light and it made you giggly. It wasn't the zonk you out. And uh, that's how I got through grad school. Basically, I uh, went to the bar and had four or five drinks every night, maybe six. I could, you know, handle the hangover if I had six. But then I went home and got high on marijuana. And, uh, and I didn't use marijuana when I got to Michigan because I didn't have any connections. Ah. But my third husband, I have to give him credit because he knew he was going to Al-Anon, even though I didn't know it. And he knew about alcoholism. His career had been in counseling. So 
he did confront me a couple of times, but he really played his Al-Anon role in the best of the sense very wisely. And, and I did eventually come, you know, to go to my first meeting, but it was with his encouragement. And, uh, and one day I told him, I don't have a problem. I'll go have an evaluation if you want. And I went, you know, up, we have a very good Brighton hospital here in Michigan. And the guy was great. He had us together. And the first thing he did was turn to my husband and said, you have a major problem with control. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. <laughs> and then he turned to me and he said, and you have a fatal disease and it's only going to get worse and you're going to need to address it. You know, he really did get my attention and thank God I listened. Shortly after that, I went to my first meeting, you know, and that was January 11th, 1986. And by the grace of God, I never had to go out again. But what was weird in those days, you know, meetings were in basements of places and they had these, you know, lots of men and a lot of smoke. And of course, I always liked hanging with men because I knew how to kind of handle them, right? So I was totally comfortable, you know, but when they started being really honest about their disease, it was like, yeah, I get it. It was, I, I never resisted. I resisted getting a sponsor. I resisted getting female friends, which is of course essential to stay sober. Um, but I did get what they were talking about with the disease. And I started going to maybe two or three meetings a week and then after about six months, I was hearing all these gals talk about their sponsors were there for them and their sponsor, they called their sponsor and they loved their sponsor. And I was like, oh, I want one of those, you know, <laughs> but I, I didn't think I was worth anyone's time in spite of what everyone said. I just, I had never really asked anyone for help like that, except a professional, but the perfect woman showed up. I asked her, she said, yes, we had a very similar um, kind of way of looking at the world and spirituality and, um, and thank God for her because she took me through the steps and I haven't had a, had a drink since or a drug or anything mind altering. <laughs> and it's interesting because I, a lot of listeners will reach out to me and they're just like, oh my gosh, going to that first meeting is so difficult. How did you do it? It takes so much courage. And I remember for me walking into my first meeting was like scarier than having a baby, getting married, buying a house, buying cars, all those things were easy compared to walking in those doors. And I can imagine, was it like that for you in 1986? I, you know, I think after that six month experiment, I was pretty ready to get some relief. And um, I don't know. I mean, it was one of those meetings where there was a men's Al-Anon meeting in the same building as the AA meeting. So I went to the AA meeting and he went to the Al-Anon meeting. And uh, I don't know. I'm just, I, what do you chalk it up to, Grace? I mean, somehow I had that moment of willingness, of honesty. And um, yeah, I took to it. I'm, I'm kind of an achiever. So I followed directions well, and that was a real benefit because when people said, first do this, 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 it, it took me six months to really dig in. 
Um, and then I started going to daily meetings and so on. But, you know, once I was convinced they had the ticket and I couldn't do it on my own, I started following their directions. So I'm grateful for that part. You know, the, the perfectionist achiever type A has that positive side to it. We can, it, it also has the negative side with the anxiety and the worry and the self-condemnation and all of that which of course, once I got sober and did my first step, my first fourth step, I realized, oh my God, listen to what I'm saying to myself in my head. <laughs> All this negative, negative, self-defeating talk. You know, I didn't think I was good at all. And for those people that are out there, because I always love us to do this in layman terms, because if somebody's just listening for the first time and they're like a fourth step, what is that? How would you describe that in layman terms? To the person? Yeah, yeah. Well, the first thing to know is that, um, you know, you might have heard on TV or somewhere, you know, about this fourth step and the inventory and digging in and being so honest and bringing up all the crap of the past and, oh, it sounds awful. And uh, I think one fear a lot of us have as we're uh, first starting the steps is that, um, you know, I... One of my favorite sayings in AA is S-O-B-E-R spells son of a bitch, everything's real. <laughs> and, you know, I had been denying my feelings, my past. There was a, a whole big Band-Aid on it that I kept on it by using and sexing and so on. So my fear was, you know, you rip that Band-Aid off all at once. That was why I was afraid to come into the rooms, you know, as I heard about the honesty and all that. And I'm happy to say that my experience, um, and I, I detail this in my book, because I think it's important for us to realize that once we do steps one, you know, I'm an alcoholic, makes my life crazy. I really can't have even one drink or drug. There is a higher power that's going to help put my life back together the way it, it should be for the goodness of all. And, um, I'm going to let that power take care of me and guide me. Well, when you get to the fourth step, which is making a list of your resentments and where they came from and so on, and your sex behavior and your fears, my higher power only let me see this much of what was down under there. And it was very manageable. It was like having a coach who knew me and said, okay, you can handle this five pound weight, but we're not going to give you any more than that. You know, when mm -hmm. you say I, I asked, you know, make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of my higher power, that does mean that the care is going to come through how quickly and how scary and how hard the layers of healing happen. And my higher power regulated it perfectly because I really didn't deal with the child of the alcoholic stuff until my second inventory wow. and growing up in a dysfunctional home. And then there was other stuff that happened that I didn't even know about that didn't emerge until my third or fourth year of sobriety. So, you know, that's the thing to remember. It's safe and it's manageable and you have your posse of recovering women around you to catch you when you think you just can't handle it. Well, it's interesting. And I'm finding, and I feel like a lot of us do, during this crazy pandemic we're living in. So me personally, and I've shared this, I think I shared this the other day on our podcast on Tuesday, but how 
sitting, you know, I'm a runner. I don't mean physically a runner. I mean mentally, right? Like I'm always yeah. busy. Like I go, I, you're a golfer, I'm a golfer. So I go play uh -huh. golf and then you have lunch. Then you might go run to the grocery store, but you're constantly on the move, right? So now that we've had this timeout, I call it timeout land. Now that we're in timeout land and all these feelings come up, and I think mm. that when all these feelings that you might not have, you know, haven't delved into deep, right? For instance, there's other 12 step available. So once you, like for me, I felt like I got as far as I could with the AA thing. So now I'm like in the master's program of ACA and realizing, you know, what am I, I mean, did you find that too? Cause I did recognize, I did also read that you, you have done more than one 12 step group. Exactly. Yeah, you know, this guy, Ernie Larson, from back in the 80s, wrote two really great books, which are still available on Amazon. One's called Stage 2 Recovery, okay. and one is called Stage 2 Relationships. And they're both about, you know, stage one is just saving my life, getting sober. Stage two is having a quality life by um, gradually... Um, reducing the power of those things that are limiting my ability to do good in the world, to be loving and caring to myself and others and to God. So um, I would say, and I'm forgetting the question you asked, it's a stage two, oh, I see other programs. So right away, it was pretty clear that, and I was with a wonderful therapist during my first years. I. I was grateful that I did have a good therapist and if you can afford one or I recommend it highly, especially one that knows about alcoholism and addiction. But anyway, I had that person to kind of hold my hand while I was uncovering these uncomfortable truths about myself. So I went to, and a lot of my friends were also working other 12-step programs. So. I was hearing how it was benefiting them. So I did go to what was called Adult Children of Alcoholics then, which is ACA now. Um, and, you know, they didn't have a big book in those days. This is like late 80s, a big book for ACA. Um, but they did have the list of the characteristics. And oh my God, when I read those characteristics, I just about died. It was like, yup, 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 yup. And and then I thought, oh my God, I'll never get over these. You know, I think that's one of the big misconceptions is that who we've become through our experiences so far is set in stone and it can't be changed in spite of how we're watching people at the tables and hearing their stories and hearing the stories in the rooms about how people's lives have changed dramatically. Um, we, there's a part of us that thinks, oh, it couldn't happen for me, you know? <laughs> But it was helpful living, you know, sitting with all those people and, and learning how they were coping with the patterns that were set into their lives by their family, mm. alcoholic family mm -hmm. growing up. And so that was a really important stage of healing for me. Um, later, I joined my therapist had, it wasn't a 12-step program, but it was a um, sexual healing program mm -hmm. because... That was one of the, the my third layer in my uh, inventories. I hadn't realized anything had happened and some stuff had happened. So no wonder I was always on high alert, you know. <laughs> um, so yeah, those, you know, and I, I still go to Al-Anon along with AA, 
because um, as my sponsor says, we have to live with the alcoholic in our own head mm. and the desire to control others and fix things and judge things and fret over things is so well addressed by Al-Anon. Um, so well, yeah. Well, thank you for that. And I, now I want to bring us to your book because okay. you know what I love? For one, I, I opened it in um, the 14 questions. Now, if anybody's out there and knows, like if you, go, if you decide you're an alcoholic, if you did it with your therapist who kind of said, go try this, but there are questions, right? There's 25 questions that they ask you that says, are you an alcoholic? Are you not an alcoholic? So people can take that. Then there's these ACA questions. There's Alamon questions, but you bring that in with the worry. And I love that because it, oh. I think it really brings a person in so that they can identify. So they're actually part of the book. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's um, like, I love that because it good. gets so interactive. If we interact, at least that's the way I learn more. At least that's how this person learned. <laughs> but having those 14 questions and then being able to honestly answer them in your, in your own home or wherever you are, library, whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, today you're probably in your own home. Um, <laughs> and you get to identify where you can work on these things. And it's, I love that with it is the answers and worksheets that you can go along and work with how you can l worry less. Yeah. Thank you. It, it's uh here's for example here's here's what oh the good because i don't have a copy normally i do that myself but i don't have a copy yeah. with me there you yeah. go so um when i well i was a teacher i was a foreign language teacher first and then i um you know had a wandering all over the world period and multiple divorces and then um became a teacher educator so i taught the methods courses for future teachers and stu supervised the student teachers. So I'm a very, um, I like things concrete and clear and I, and I like to teach people things. <laughs> so after I retired in 2007, you know, I took a few years off cause I was exhausted after being an overachiever. And um, then I thought, well, maybe I'll write a memoir because I had, periods of my life where I did very adventurous things, following these different men around the world. <laughs> and uh, as I mentioned before, some I married and some I didn't, but um, I did have the three divorces, and so I never did have children. I couldn't stay married long enough. Um, the grace of God is that after a year sober, I'll just put this in here now because I may forget, um, I had learned something about affirmations and I had felt so horrible about all, all my relationships had crashed and burned. And, um, you know, that I grew up in the era where, you know, the knight in the shining armor and you fall in love forever and you have the picket fence and, you know, boy, my life was not turning out that way. Um, but I think my higher power was looking down and saying, you know, this gal really needs a good guy in her life. <laughs> So after a year of sobriety, I was um, divorcing my third husband, and um, and I went to a meeting, and there was this, I'd hurt my back, it was a long story, but anyway, he offered me his chair, and we all went out afterwards, a bunch of us, and I thought, what a, what a nice guy, you know, and went very slowly. For the first time in my life, I didn't crawl in the pocket of the man and ditch all my girlfriends and live there, you know, which is never a good formula. So I stayed in therapy. I kept doing my meetings. I, I only allowed myself to see him twice a week. 
I put a governor on myself. <laughs> and I stayed, you know, so, and I was terrified. But um, over time, after two and a half years, we got married. And he's my fourth husband. And we just had our 31st anniversary. And it's a miracle. It's a, it couldn't, I couldn't have had a better man. So anyway, he's instrumental in how this happened. Because when I after those few years of rest, I said, well, maybe I'll write a memoir. And he said, um, you know, why don't you write a self-help book where you write down some of the things I hear you telling your sponsees on the phone? And I thought, oh, that's interesting because a, a memoir is a little self-serving. You know, who, how's it going to benefit anyone? And I had already written down a lot of stories from my journals and so on. I had transcribed all of those. So the first draft of the book had a lot more stories in it, but I had some editors that helped me winnow it to keep the juiciest stories, but make the focus the reader. You know, here's the challenge I had. Here's how it was driving me crazy. Here's the techniques I discovered that helped me through it. Here's how you can do them too. And another and another. Um, one of the struggles I had, because I wanted this to be for recovering people and people not in recovery, mm -hmm. because, you know, I think all of us have had the thought once we're down the road for a while and feeling so much happier, boy, how can we help other people find these great tools, you know, these ideas and these concepts and so on. So I did create it for um, everybody and for the recovering person. And uh, it's very popular with recovering community because that's the one I interact with the most. Uh, but I've, I've heard a lot of people um, say that it's really beneficial for them and they've never been in recovery. So I, I love how it turned out. Just the right people showed up. The right editor, you know, I was at a meeting. Oh, what's up with you? Oh, I'm doing this. And she said, what's up with you? Oh, I'm writing a book. Oh, I have a friend who's in recovery. She's a fabulous editor. You know, so that's how I found it, the book cover, everything. And I didn't go with one of those publishing companies that has like a cafeteria where you buy their services um, because I had been a project manager and stuff. I just <laughs> did my own construction company, so to speak, and hired all freelancers. Um, and it, you know, I submitted it for awards and it got an award and it, it's gotten really good reviews from the fancy places like, you know, Book Life and library journal and so on so you know I think the being achiever part did kind of come through <laughs> and it's getting good reviews on Amazon too so it's been really exciting so Gigi tell me this I want to so so we as I mentioned earlier we're going through a pandemic your book is about worrying everyone that is out in the universe right now and again you mentioned your this book isn't just for people in recovery because this pandemic is affecting every person right mm -hmm. and what would you what if you were to give somebody some advice like a, let's just snip it if you had to just give it a like a little like an elevator an elevator speech of yeah. what you would give to them for an advice to getting through these times and the worrying and maybe that, and then it might encourage them to actually go out and get the book because I can tell you that there are examples and I love that you have these amazing examples and you did like you would do the image, the, um, 
what is it called? Not a dream board, an image board. What is oh, it called? Yeah, vision. Vision board. And just there's so many great tools. So what would you tell the people that are mm. out there that are listening, that are going through this and going, I am so worried about everything. I'm worrying about my money. I'm worried about if my kids are going back to school or not. I'm worrying about how are we going to live? Am I going to be able to go out? Should I go to the grocery store? Should I not go to the grocery store? I mean, just like everything. So what would you say? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the main premise of the book is that Remember, in people in recovery, we call it the committee. But uh, we have these whispered lies that are whispered to us by the fear part of our brain, of our mind. Some call it the ego. But it's telling us, you know, this is going to be horrible. You're not going to survive this. So-and-so is going to die. This is, And so one of the first things I need to do is take responsibility for my, the activity of my brain. In other words, I used to think that my thoughts were just my thoughts and I was stuck with them and they would drive the bus. Now I have a higher self, a higher power, a source of power and wisdom to say, help me change this thought from something that's self-defeating or ugly toward others. Help me change this thought to a loving thought, a caring thought. Mm. Now, here's the trick on all of this one time is not enough because my mind goes back. So one simple little technique, you've heard it in recovery, is called the golden key, where if you have a concept of a higher power, I'm worrying, oh my God, this COVID thing. And by the way, if you're highly sensitive and easily aroused, which many of us in recovery are, um, I am very careful about how much news and in what form I consume it. So I do not watch dramatic television talking heads. I read two different news sources and I choose it carefully from different points of view. But anyway, so taking responsibility for what you let fill your brain is part of it. And then when the brain is continuing to harp on something negative, it's um, one very powerful thing to do is to say, God, help me to see this differently. You know, and and I don't have to define what the differently is. I just have to say, help me to see this differently as you would see it, you know? Mm. And I, because we have a higher power and humility is key, we have to admit that we aren't as smart as smart as our brains think and we're projecting in the future as if we know what should happen or what's going to happen or what we should. We're just not that smart, (laughs) When, especially when we're coming out of our ego and our fear self. So watching our thoughts and then choosing to change them again and again, which is what the golden key does. You know, um, oh God, this COVID thing's awful. Okay, I'm going to golden key it. God's will be done. God is good. Higher power, peace, love. And pretty soon my mind's back here, right? right. Oh God, this COVID thing. <laughs> and then I notice it and I come back. So many of us have not developed the ability to notice what we're thinking and to make a choice about it. But you have absolute control over what your mind focuses on. It's just that it's programmed to focus on negative stuff. So this is why if you look at the research, the number one tool to counter anxiety and worry is meditation. And it's because, and Here's the good news, 
and I'm like this too. Everybody says, I can't meditate. My mind won't stop. It only counts if you can clear your mind of everything. And that's not the truth. What's the truth is when they do the research, they realize that people who have learned practice, meditating, actually practice, what they're doing is noticing when their mind is off on some tangent and learning to bring it back to a mantra or a sound, something calming. And then, of course, the mind goes back here. And there's no penalty for noticing. That's a victory. Oh, let me bring it back here. So we can see how meditation is a training for taking responsibility for what my mind focuses on and making it positive and loving and caring rather than scary and judging and <laughs> condemning. Oh, I love that, Gigi. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can, where can our listeners find your book? Just on Amazon? Well, Amazon has it. It's available in audiobook. It's um, available as an ebook. And Amazon has some soft cover books. But um, if you go to G.G. Langer, G-I-G-I-L-A-N-G-E-R.com, I have a such a deal. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you can contact me. I have a few tokens left for a free audiobook. And it comes with this big PDF file of all the exercises. Um, but the, I also will send you, if you do gglanger.com, you'll see that you can buy the paperback. And I send you a little PDF with all the worksheets. And that is uh, personally signed by me and free shipping within the United States. So that I'm lowering the price from Amazon quite a bit. Um, So you can just go to gglanger.com. Well, that'll be in the post. So people can just actually click it. If you go to busylivingsober.com, I'll have that link for you for them on there. Again, thank you because you've given everybody a new tool and I feel like there aren't enough tools in our toolbox. So you doing it as simply and beautifully as you did. And I, I have to tell you, it was really, I, I, I really like it. I really like oh, it. And thanks so much. I'm so happy you reached out. Good luck to you. Stay thank safe. Thank you. Thank stay you. Stay healthy. And everybody until next time, keep getting busy living sober. <laughs> bye bye. Thanks everyone. Bye bye.